according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our scripture today will be Luke 22 as we get started. Luke chapter 22. Verses uh, 14 through 16. And then uh, we'll move on to verses 24 through 30. We've covered two points of study. Today we've got uh, points three and four. We'll see uh, how long my voice holds out and uh, we'll see how far we get. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle eternal truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have once again to assemble together. We pray for uh, distractions to be set aside, Father, and concentration upon that which we need to conduct our lives in a manner that imitates your Son in a manner that glorifies Him. For it is in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. All right, we've combined episodes 17 and 18 into a single exposition, a single development that has uh, four points of study, and we are halfway through. So far we have seen, uh, and this is a, a blend of Matthew 26 with Mark 14 with Luke 22, and so far we've seen the uh, unnamed water carrier and the unnamed house owner and how uh, the Lord used a bit of uh, cloak and dagger, as it were, uh, to keep his uh, enemies off track. Uh, Judas didn't know uh, what house to send the uh, agents to to arrest Christ because uh, Judas didn't know what house they were going to. Jesus didn't know what house they were going to. And uh, interesting, uh, interesting steps there. This is uh, the most famous upper room in the history of the world. It's going to include uh, five events in the Life of Christ outline, including Passover, foot washing, uh, the ex- ex- uh, exposing of the betrayer and the expelling of the betrayer, where he says, what you do, do quickly, and uh, sends them out of there. The uh, institution of the Lord's table, the introduction of, of communion takes place in this upper room. This is event 22 in the last Judean, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem, episode 22. And then ultimately the upper room discourse takes place in the upper room. And uh, that's what we have as episode 23, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem, episode 23. And uh, the content of John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, all to be developed uh, in that particular episode. So, uh, as you can see, we're still in point A there on that outline. We're still uh, dealing with Passover, and we've not yet reached the uh, episode of the foot washing. Although, the uh, material we're going to see today related to verse 24, there also arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. This context does immediately lead into the foot washing episode. And so we have the backdrop, as it were, for that episode uh, described in uh, the point that we're studying right now. And then we moved on from there to point two to give the background on Passover. Jesus and his disciples observed the final Passover of his first advent. And under this, we studied A, Old Testament background on Passover and unleavened bread. B, we looked at how Jesus had observed Passover several times previously. In fact, the tracking of the Passovers in John uh, chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 11 
<laughs> the tracking of those Passover feasts is, is very important for us in order to correctly organize the, the whole life of Christ chronology. Uh, you know, if, we did, if all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would have no clue that his ministry was more than about a year or a year and a half. Uh, but it's because we have the references in John to the Passover again and again and again that we know that these years are going by. And so uh, these passages in John are vital for all life of Christ chronological studies. And then thirdly, where we spent our time last week, point C, the problem arises with the priest's Passover observance on the following day. And we spent last week harmonizing the fact that Jesus and his disciples are taking the Passover dinner on Thursday night. <clears throat> they are having their Passover meal on Thursday night. But the following day on Friday, the priests are reluctant to enter into, in fact, they refuse to enter into the uh, praetorium, into the Roman territory there, uh, because they don't want to defile themselves so that they can take the Passover that night on Friday night. And so why is it that Jesus and his disciples are having Passover on Thursday night and uh, the, the priests are having their Passover on Friday night? And uh, that is, a, that is a, a Bible puzzle and one that we spent all last week dealing with, basically giving you a, a rundown on uh, Harold Honer and uh, his wonderful study that's featured in the uh, chronological aspects of the life of Christ. We move on today to main point three then. And uh, for this, we're going to take a look at verses uh, 15 and 16 of Luke 22. Point three, this night has been on the Lord's heart for weeks. This night has been on the Lord's heart for years. This night has been on the Lord's heart for ages. And actually in his deity, this night has been on the Lord's heart since the foundation of the world. And so uh, we want to take the time to break down uh, the, I think, a full study on, on what this night meant for Jesus Christ. So point three, if you're keeping notes, this night has been on the Lord's heart for weeks, years, even ages, even ages. So in Luke 22, we read, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table when the hour had come. I love that. <laughs> How many times in the last seven years have we been in a study and it says his hour had not yet come? His hour had not yet come. I'm too many to count, right? But here, when the hour had come. Man. All right. Gives you goose, pimp, goose pimples. All right. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this, pass, this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in in the kingdom of God. I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. All right. He's taking communion, or he's taking not communion, he's taking Passover with them repeatedly, year after year after year. Uh, but this one is different. This one is the one that's immediately going to be followed by the reality. It's the typology followed by the reality. Also, this one is the one in which he's going to introduce communion. This is the one in which he's going to introduce the ritual that the apostles will take into the church age. So there are some differences here between any that he's ever taken before and this particular one. This one is unique. Now, I wish I could show you how beautiful verse 15 is it is amazing in the greek it's amazing in its poetry and it's amazing in its in its beauty and i will try to describe it as best as i can well i could even 
I still have my software running from when uh, Dan and I were training earlier. Luke 22.15. There it is. <coughs> and... Greek Bible. There. Isn't that beautiful? The... Uh, Yeah. <clears throat> All right. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In the Greek it says, Kai epen prosautus, and he said to them, Epithumia, epithumesa, tuta ta paskaphagain, methumon, pra tume pathain. Now, in case, I don't expect that you followed any of that. Dan probably did, but... Um, you have the, the combination here of epithumia with epithumesa. Epithumia with epithumesa. And you notice that when you highlighted it here in the Greek text, then your English Bible on the left also highlighted. Isn't that awesome? All right. So, I have earnestly desired. With lust, I have lusted. Okay, you have a noun and you have a verb. And it's, this, it's the cognate form of the verb that you have here as the noun. And this is very Hebrew. Uh, you're looking at this in Greek thinking I'm reading a Hebrew sentence. Because this is a very Hebrew expression. Where in the Hebrew you would say, dying thou shalt surely, you know, dying thou will die. Right? When he says, uh, that thou shalt surely die. It's a way to express intensity. It's a very powerful way to express intensity. And then you have pascha. For Passover, and you have Pasco to suffer. And those, uh, you have that pairing that just jumps out the page at you when you see it there. So I went ahead and put that into points. We start off with point A, examining the earnest desire. I have earnestly desired epithumia, epithumesa. Epithumia, epithumesa. And this is where we have to stop and, and study to show ourselves approved and remind ourselves that we can't just react to a word like lust and say, oh, lust, bad. Okay? <laughs> because a lot of lust studies, uh, of course, are bad. But there are lust applications that are actually recorded as being positive, as being right, as being proper and appropriate. And uh, this is one such Example, and there are others, and I listed them for you on the slide. Epithumia, epithumesa. This is a Hebraism. And a Hebraism is what we find in the New Testament where you have uh, Hebrew authors writing in Greek, and yet much of their Hebrew um, style or the Hebrew language uh, uh, style comes across. And so we have it here. Uh, the idiom also appears at John 3.29 and Acts 4.17. These are the most glaring and obvious ones. There, there's actually dozens more than when you get into the uh, grammars of Moulton Howard and Turner and some of these other ones. You start to, to spot more and more of them. And it's amazing how some men have dedicated their lives to uh, hunting these down, <laughs> which you have to be kind of a, a language geek to, to do that, to spend your life doing that. And, and yet we can appreciate uh, the people who have done those things where we can enter into their labor. John 3.29 is a passage that says, uh, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, 
But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly. We're familiar with this passage, right? We're, okay. So uh, he who stands uh, and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Well, the expression of that passage rejoices greatly is a combination similar to what we have here. It's kara, joy, Cairo, rejoice. And so literally it would be with joy rejoices. So how redundant is that? Okay. With joy rejoices. Kara, Cairo. Okay. <clears throat> and again, that expresses the idiom. And uh, the doubling of it there uh, intensifies it to a, to a maximum level or to a great certainty. And that's what we see here. So rejoices greatly. There's nothing wrong with that as a rendering. But when you, uh, when you render it like that, I think you lose the flavor for how the redundant emphasis is being made. Another example comes in Acts 4.17. Acts 4.17. Although this one is not in every manuscript, there's a text criticism application to be made here. But in some of the manuscripts, the idiom is present. <clears throat> where it says, um, <coughs> this is where they're all upset that Peter and John are proclaiming Christ. And they tell them to stop. And they give them what we would call today a restraining order. They give them a, an injunction, right? Don't preach. And uh, it says, so that, uh, what are we going to do? I love this. They're, they're, they're speechless. What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle is taking place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now that verse right there tells you <laughs> that they don't care that God that they're on the opposite side of what God's on. Because uh, the miracle is undeniable. God's power has been shown. And we have to keep that news from spreading if we can. Um, we cannot deny it. They cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And so when they had summoned them and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And so the warning them, when it says let us warn them, uh, you have this idiom that we're, <coughs> that we're looking at that, that literally says, with threats, threaten them. Let us with threats threaten them. And so you've got the doubling with the noun and the verb that comes together. So, of course, with lust, I have lusted. With lust, I have lusted. And that's, uh, you know, redundant and unnecessary. Of course, you've lusted with lust. What else would you lust with? Right. That's like with threats, I have threatened with joy. I have rejoiced. Those all go without saying. But the fact that you say it where it's unnecessary, just doubles it, emphasizes it, stresses it, leaves it um, in, in a very forceful fashion. And so he says, with lust, I have lusted. You have the dative of epithumia uh, showing its instrumental use uh, with or by means of or through the agency of the instrument of lust. I have lusted. Epithumesa. Epithumeo is uh, number 1937 in the Strong's Concordance numbers, uh, 16 times. This is your key word if 1937 is your birth year. Um, <laughs> all right. I won't tell you what 1969 is. <clears throat> but uh, so you got a lucky special Greek word based upon your, the year of your birth and your Strong's Concordance. And there you have it. All right. The, uh, 
Epithumeo. Now, thumeo is to have feelings for. <clears throat> to have, uh, it's thumos, is your passion or your feeling. And so, uh, and, and, and these are very normal. We're, we're created as, uh, as, as, as passionate people, as feeling people. Well, that's, that's the nature of humanity. It's the nature of God to have passions. Uh, nothing wrong with passions. When they're directed towards the right object, according to what God's designed, it's a beautiful thing. When it's directed towards the wrong object, it's sin. And when it's intensified beyond normal, when it's intensified beyond normal, you start to go into problems. And that's where the passion becomes an inordinate desire, where it becomes an, an inappropriate lust beyond a normal passion. And so when it's intensified with the epi, that's when you really have to have a note of caution to say, the intensification is probably wrong unless it's God himself that's caused the intensification. In, unless it's God himself that is really driving the fervency in this, we're probably in, a, in an inappropriate lust application. And that's why the, the bulk of the epithumia passages in the Bible are all dealing with sexual lust. They're dealing with improper, inordinate, um, sinful desires. In this case, though, it's proper. So epithumeo only has 16 New Testament uses. The, ver, the, the noun has more. Uh, but to have a strong desire to do or to secure something. And you can render it to desire or to long for. Long for. And the New American Standard is pretty fond of the long for. Paul was longing for the Romans. He wanted to be in Rome to impart a gift to them, for example. It's not always sexual. Although the first use is, the use in Matthew 5, 28 is. The use there where it says uh, if... Uh, if, if a man has longed for a woman in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Say, if he's lusted for her in his heart, then he's already, he hadn't committed the physical act yet, but he's already guilty in his mind for having done it. That epithemat is not always sinful, and it's not always wrong. It's not always wrong. Would you say the Lord is wrong for this? When he says, I have with lust, I have lusted for this night? No. With lust, I have lusted to uh, to eat this Passover with you? No, it's not a not a carnal lust at all. And so, obviously, I think if you look at it in the larger context, we have no issues with that. These other uses: Matthew thirteen seventeen, First Timothy three one, Hebrews six eleven, First Peter one twelve. I would say that in all four of those uses, plus the one we're looking at today, in all five of these uses, they are appropriate uh, applications of epithumeo. There is nothing illegitimate about about these things. And so we can, uh, you know, in the right, in the right context, we can also say that we lust after certain things. Now, I would be <coughs> cautious saying that out loud because someone might hear you that doesn't have the right perspective <coughs> and won't hear it the way that you're saying it. <coughs> but Matthew thirteen seventeen. There's a larger context leading up to this, but we'll let that go. Uh, this is in contrast to the Pharisees, religious leaders, the Jewish people, who for the most part don't see the Christ right before their eyes. <clears throat> their eyes have become uh, blind and, and their heart has become dull. But blessed are your eyes, verse 16, because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men lusted. Many prophets and righteous men, epithumeo, 
desired intensely, intensely desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Is this an inappropriate lust? Is this an an inappropriate desire? No, it's actually being spoken as a positive thing. But see, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all those guys, all they could see were shadows and anticipations and long-term prophecies. They were not assigned to live in the generation that would see with their physical eyes the Christ himself. They wanted to. They longed to. It's kind of like I long to see the, the rapture of the church. And I'm firmly convicted that I am in the rapture generation. But it, I'm, I'm a couple thousand years off. And my great, great, great grandchild is teaching the rapture someday. Well, it is what it is. And, uh, and there you have it. So there's a, <clears throat> a positive example. Earnestly desired with an intensive epithumeo application. Greatly desired to see what they were privileged to see. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 3.1 This isn't negative anyway. We're explicitly told it's positive. <clears throat> it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he lusts after. It is a fine work that he epithumeo desires intensely to do. And then it goes on to give the present qualifications and disqualifications for a man to be vested in the office of overseer. You understand. And we've taught the difference between a gift and a ministry. We've taught the difference between a gift and an office. A man with a gift of pastor-teacher has that gift from the moment that he's saved. And he can't desire to receive a gift that he doesn't already have. And by the time he starts to learn about spiritual gifts, he already has one. (laughs) He's already saved. All right. But a ministry can be desired and should be desired. And an office can be desired and should be desired. I believe it should be greatly desired. That if the man is not under conviction that this is his assignment before the Lord, then he ought not be in that position. But if a man is under conviction, then this is the open door Jesus Christ has has offered, and this is the open door that Jesus Christ has laid before him, then he better earnestly desire that. And so we see it here. (coughs) The office of overseer. Different than the gift of pastor-teacher. Different than the maturity status of elder. Although, the maturity status of elder will meet these present qualifications more often than uh, than not. All right. So it's a positive thing. It's a fine work. It is a fine work that he desires earnestly to do. And that's described as a positive thing. Hebrews 6.11, another example of this. Hebrews Verse 9 says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show 
the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And so we, the author of Hebrews and his associates, earnestly desire, we epithumeo, we lust after, <clears throat> that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Not only is it right for a man to lust after the office of overseer, and this is the door Jesus has opened, and this is his work assignment. But in exercising that ministry, it is appropriate to lust after the growth of the people you're teaching. That those that you hear, John said, I have no greater, no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. That I earnestly desire that my flock would be living the word that they're learning. So we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. Of course we would desire that. We would desire that so strongly, it'd be like, it'd be like a lust. See, and so it's not wrong to use that kind of a word in this, in this application. And then finally, 1 Peter 1.12. <clears throat> the last of what I found to be the positive uses of epithumeo. 1 Peter 1.12. <clears throat> the angels are doing this. As to this salvation, verse 10, referencing our dispensation of grace. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. We saw previously how they lusted to see these things. And I think that's very much in agreement here. So take Matthew 13, 17 and combine it there in verse 10. I think you got it. You got a, a good picture on that. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They were really and truly puzzled over the suffering Messiah and the, and the glorying Messiah. The suffering and the glory. And they, they struggled hard. And they worked hard. And they prayed and they inquired of the Lord. They lusted after this knowledge, seeing this. What person or time you understand? How do, we, how do we resolve the conundrum? There's a suffering Messiah. There's a glorious Messiah. So is the answer that there's two Messiahs? Is it a person solution? Or does the, there's the one Messiah come two times? Is it a time solution? And so they were seeking to know what person or time. And you and I can answer that now. It wasn't two messiahs. It was one messiah who came two times. And we can answer that now because we're in between those two times. But those guys didn't know. They saw the sufferings of Christ and the glories and said, wait a minute. Are there two Christs or is the one, is, are, is the one coming twice? <clears throat> now it was revealed to them, and they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you, in other words, you got a New Testament. They didn't have that. Things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now notice, things into which angels lust. Epithumeo. Things into which angels long to look. So it's not only the prophets in the Old Testament that were uh, couldn't wait for these things to be unveiled. The angels themselves. Were, had the same anticipation, the same hunger, the same appetite, the same lust. Oh, man, when's this going to be unveiled? 
When is this going to be fulfilled? How is this going to all come together? Angels are learning right as uh, humanity has the progressive revelation of God unfold. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. We've got an application to make because we have been entrusted with things that angels lust after. The, the, un, the revealed plan of God. And the role we play as the royal family of God is amazing in that regard. All right. Now, the other word play on this. Point B. Eat this Passover before I suffer. This is another word play that doesn't jump out at you right off the bat. <clears throat> Passover and suffer don't appear to be connected in any way. <clears throat> but when you see that they are Pascha and Pasco, you start to think, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Pascha and Pasco. So I have, I have, with lust I have lusted to eat this Pascha before I Pasco. Pascha, P-A-S-C-H-A, Pascha. 39.57. And this is especially fun because Pasco is not even a Greek word. I'm, I'm sorry, Pascha is not even a Greek word. Pascha comes from the Hebrew and from the Aramaic. You know, you, you, you go to a, a pagan Greek, you go to Aristotle and Plato and <coughs> Socrates, right? Socrates, <laughs> those guys. And you ask them... Um, <coughs> Sorry, I had a flashback from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure there. Um, but Plato and Aristotle and those guys, and uh, you ask them about Passover, and they'd be like, what's that? You know, the knot on which Israel was delivered from Egypt is not dominant in a Greek way of thought. All right? That's not their culture. That's not their heritage. That's not their background. That's not their divine revelation. That's not their memorial. So the Greek language does not have a concept for the Pesach like the uh, Hebrew or the Aramaic would have. And so you have a term here that basically is a transliteration from the Aramaic or the Hebrew. And uh, they, they make a Greek word out of it. And they call it Ta Pesca. And so, and so it's, uh, and it's neat because the Greeks do have a word for suffering, which is Pasco. And that's what we have here. Referencing the ordeal and the suffering and the affliction that uh, that he's going to go through. And it's his affliction. It's where he bears our burdens. It's where he accepts the wrath of God. It's the affliction that he submits to, whereby the Father's righteousness and justice is satisfied. And so, once again, we have a play on words between Pascha and Pasco. And it's just a beautiful thing to see where he says, With lust I have lusted to eat this Pascha before I Pasco. And, you know, it's a, it's a sentence that he can utter and they're going to remember for the rest of their lives in the way that it's expressed here. All right. Now, <clears throat> he knows that he's going to suffer and he knows that this is the night. And he submits to it. <laughs> he submits to it. He does not, uh, you know, I, I would... I'd zap Judas with lightning or something, right? Or I'd turn him into a frog or I'd, you know, whatever. You're going to betray me? Stab me in the back? Okay. My, that my, my carnal nature wouldn't stand for that. Okay. I mean, my carnal nature, I'm freely confessing to you now. 
<clears throat> the, uh, and most humans wouldn't. Nobody likes betrayal, just in human terms. If, if, if you knew ahead of time about the betrayal and you had sufficient ability to keep it from happening, would you, would you keep it from happening? You know, I mean, I mean, short of killing the guy, I mean, if you had a way, a nice way to stop it, would you tip him off to say, hey, by the way, I know right now you, you just, you got 30 pieces of silver last night to betray me. Don't do it. I know all about it. Would you tip him off? Would you, would you find a way to, to say, uh, you know, it's not going to work. I'm six steps ahead of you. <laughs> okay. I would. But he didn't. That's the point. He didn't. He didn't stop it tonight. He didn't stop it any night this week. He, he's not going to stop it tomorrow. He's going to hang on the cross. They're going to say, come down. And he didn't come down. He didn't come down. Okay. There's an old gospel quartet song called, are you familiar with that one? Called, He Didn't Come Down. Oh, man, it's a fun one. All right. <clears throat> Thirdly now, this desire, this earnest desire. Let me get back to Luke. And I don't know how much more voice I have, to be honest with you. <clears throat> but we'll see. Uh, thirdly, because I want to get to this. <clears throat> the play on words is fun and all that, but the... Uh, the desire, the perspective on this. Thirdly, point C. The desire of the Lord was to accomplish everything the Father assigned for Him to do. The desire of the Lord was to accomplish everything the Father assigned for Him to do. You know, whether it's pleasant or not, that's irrelevant. The Father assigned it. It was His delight to please the Father. This delight and desire was birthed from the foundation of the world. It was birthed from the foundation of the world. Now, I could add to this list. I gave you, I gave you four passages. I could add to it. And, I, and right now I'm kind of regretting I didn't include John. Uh, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Right. John 6, I think that is. So add that yourself. Or I'll find it and plug it in by next week. <coughs> but that, the point is, that didn't just start with his earthly ministry. Jesus has been pleasing to the Father since the foundation of the world. This delight before the Father has been the case since the hypostatic union. Since His human nature was birthed. Since the plan was put into effect. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all agreed to the plan. But from that first moment where that plan went into effect, this has been Jesus Christ's delight before His Father. So this delight and desire was birthed from the foundation of the world. Proverbs 8.31, Psalm 22, Psalm 40, Hebrews 10. And so we'll spend our time today going through these and hopefully <clears throat> expanding our thinking where we're thinking more than just uh, short-term things happening within the, the bounds of time and, and try to think in a big picture from Alpha to Omega, what is the Father accomplishing through the Son what is the Son accomplishing for the Father in creation itself? Obviously, the cross is a big part of it, but it didn't start with the cross. So in Proverbs 8, we can start with this. Proverbs chapter 8. <coughs> Verse 
I'll have some coffee. Thank you. I've got a one o'clock appointment too. I gotta <laughs> and then class tonight. No. Anyway. Dan gave me some drugs earlier too. Dan's my, my drug dealer. Gave me some Benadryl. Alright. <clears throat> Proverbs eight thirty one and this uh, closes the paragraph that talks about the birth of the humanity of Christ that starts in verse 22 where Yahweh uh, begat me or, or possessed me, acquired me as the beginning of his way before his works of old. So before anything came into existence, before anything was barad, created out of nothing, the humanity of Christ was begotten, was birthed. From everlasting I was established from the beginning from the earliest times of the earth. So this is an in the beginning that is prior to the Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. Okay? It's after the John 1-1 in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. But then this beginning, the birthing of the humanity of Christ. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. So, you got the seven-day account of creation that starts with, you know, darkness, and then there's depths, and the land comes forth. But before any of that, before there were depths, I was brought forth. The childbearing term. I was delivered. I was birthed. We understand the humanity of Christ was birthed from the Father, from the will of the Father. <coughs> all right. And so you go through all of this, and you see that that he was the father was the architect, Christ was the workman. It says in verse thirty, I was beside him as a master workman. So God the Father is the architect. That's why it can be said that he did all these things. It can be said that the Father brought forth the earth. The Father brought forth the universe. He did so as the architect, as the designer, as the planner. But the contractor, the master workman, was God the Son. Side by side with his father. I was beside him as a master workman. And I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing always before him. And so we see that the desire of the Lord, the delight and the desire of the Lord is right here. And specifically, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. Delighting in the will of the Father, even prior to humanity, Adam and Eve being placed on planet Earth. His delight was in the sons of man. When even though the first earth was populated by angels, not men, Jesus Christ had a delight in the sons of men. So important that we start to understand this. But there's delight and there's desire. Daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing in the world, his earth. Having my delight in the sons of man. That's great uh, poetry there too. Delight, rejoicing, rejoicing, delight. All right. Then we get to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. <clears throat> Maybe I should give these in a different order, but that's okay. That's the way it's on there. We'll go with it like that. Psalm 22. How does the psalm start? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> the words of Jesus on the cross. But it doesn't stop with verse 1. The entire psalm is important for us to study as it relates to the crucifixion and the eternal glories to follow. See, it's not just uh, verse 1 that relates to the cross. <clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I have no rest. I don't know how long David suffered when he wrote this psalm. But it was over multiple days because he's crying out by day and by night. For Jesus, it all came within the same three hours because darkness descended and he had day and night in a, in a very short period of time. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. This is why this is a lament and not a grumbling. <laughs> okay? When, when you cycle doctrine and when you go back to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God, you have a legitimate lament laying out your complaint before the Lord while still relying on His faithfulness. If you take out verse 3, then all you have left is a grumble. Okay? Yet you are holy, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Everything I go through, God, you're still on the throne. Thank you, Father. I'm going through this and I don't like it. I'm going through that and I don't like it. I'm going through all these other things. But you're still on your throne. So I'm going to walk by faith and trust you're going to work this out. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now I can't prove this, but my personal feeling is that Jesus recited this entire passage on the cross from memory while he was hanging there. The Gospels, of course, record that he cited verse 1. I think he cited the whole thing. <clears throat> but I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. Now you see, this is still, he's, this is still the cross. These verses you can read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They wag the lip. They wag the head. Saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Okay? And we're going we're gonna to see that in, in Matthew. This is in the gospel record. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. So we have delight going two directions. The son delights in the father. The father delights in the son. That's important to study as well. All right. <clears throat> Skipping on down. Both of these are true from David's standpoint, from Jesus' standpoint. Um, bowls of Bashan. See more of that with respect to the cross. Um, dogs have surrounded me in verse 16. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet a thousand years before it happened. About 800 years before the practice of crucifixion was even invented. The Persians invented the earliest form of it, but there they didn't pierce hands and feet. They just created a great big sharp stake, uh, some 20 feet high, 30 feet high, 50 feet high. <coughs> the higher the worse, <laughs> right? And a big sharp pointed stake like the gallows. Gallows is bad that Haman created. It should be the stake that Haman created <laughs> in the book of Esther. A big sharp point, and then you impale the person on the top of it. Right? Right through the gut. Just boom. 
And then uh, they hang there in pain and anguish and agony. And then they gradually slide down lower and lower and lower as gravity does what it does. And they, they die in full view of everybody. Haman's stake was 50 feet high in the book of Esther, and they hung him on that. Well, the Romans uh, perfected that, uh, that torture device, and they, uh, they decided they could make it more painful, more excruciating through their methodology, through the hands and the feet. And so they created that. And most of the death took place over days through exposure and shock and the collapse of the, the, the condemned man would try to hold himself up until his muscles just gave out and then, and then he couldn't breathe and things of that nature. All right. They pierced my hands and my feet a thousand years ahead of time. This, to me, is an amazing prophecy. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 18. We can read about that in the Gospels. You can teach the whole life of Christ right here, can't you? <laughs> okay? Or a lot of it. You can teach the, the cross right here. And it almost seems contradictory. Well, which is it? Do they, do they divide them? Do they split them up? Or do they cast lots? What do they do? It kind of seems like it's contradictory right there. But the truth is they did both. Some of the garments they divided up and split amongst themselves. But the one seamless garment, for that one, they cast lots. So both halves of that verse are fulfilled, even though that verse looks like it's kind of a, a contradictory sort of thing. Now, you get down to uh, verse 21, and he says, Save me. Answer me. And is this where we want to stop? The doctrine of Jesus Christ on the cross. I don't think so. Because... The, the Jesus, in, in voicing this prayer, or David when prophesying this prayer, expects there's going to be an answer. Now, he hasn't seen the answer yet, but he knows an answer is coming, and so he describes what he's going to do when the answer comes. He says, save me, answer me, in verse 21. And then in verse 22, he says, this is what I'm going to do. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will... Praise you. Okay? Or, split it up better, I will tell of your name to my brethren, and then in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. There's two halves to that poem. Both have an I will. Now think about it, because Satan had a bunch of I wills, right? <laughs> and he was 0 for 5. But Jesus utters some I wills. And, and he's going to fulfill these. These will happen. When's he going to do these, though? When do these get fulfilled? <clears throat> they cannot be fulfilled until the cross is done, until the Father saves, the Father answers. But this is what he anticipates. Now notice, he's not the only one that gets to do this. He's going to invite others to join with this. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. And I would put forth that this includes physical descendants and spiritual descendants. This would be believers of all ages. Of course, you can't break it down dispensationally in the Psalms. You can do so from the New Testament. <clears throat> He's not by himself doing this, though. Why not? Because he has a body of redeemed that he can invite to join with him. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. See, this, and this passage started with, why have you forsaken me? But it ends with, 
He has not forsaken me. He has not hidden his face from me. Only for a moment. Only for the time necessary. Once it is finished, totalistai, then he is no longer hiding his face from him. He is no longer turning his back. He is once again hearing him. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried for him for help, he heard. Prayers get answered. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat. Now, here is something. Who is saying this in verse 25? From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. I think what we have here is we have a response from the father to the son. And from you, this is the father speaking, from you, God the son, comes my praise in the great assembly. Because that's what the son vowed to do. The son vowed that he would, in the midst of the assembly, praise the father. And so the father says, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I, the father, shall pay my vows before the Father's vows before those who fear Jesus Christ, those who fear the Son. And so, yes, He is going to honor the Son, but He's going to do so before the body of the redeemed. He's going to do so before the body, well, the bride of Christ ultimately, and the body of redeemed Jews and Gentiles and angels. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him well, praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. There I think we go back to Jesus again. The afflicted is Jesus Christ. He is the afflicted one. He is the one who suffered from the foundation of the earth. He's the, he is the one who was afflicted for our transgressions. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. But it, see, it takes the cross for this to happen. God promised Abraham and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, but it can't happen without the cross. It can't happen without humanity being redeemed, without Christ being afflicted, without the payment being made. And so here is a tremendous prophecy, a song that the Father and the Son are singing back and forth to one another. Answer my prayers. And when you do, here's how I'm going to respond. And the Father says, oh, when I do, here's how I'm going to respond. And I will pay my vow. What vow did the Father make to the Son? Did the Father make a vow to the Son? The Father made several vows to the Son. And we're going to start to see some of those. But the Son also made vows to the Father. Isn't this awesome? The God who cannot lie, and He's taking vows to Himself. All right. So, the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before Him. Even He who cannot keep His soul alive. Now, there's a title. He cannot keep His soul alive. The one who did not deserve to die cannot keep His soul alive. Not if He wants to redeem us. Not if He wants to obey the Father. Not if He wants to accomplish the Father's purpose. He cannot keep His soul alive. He will offer up His soul. Alright. Posterity will serve Him. 
It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. This is going to be fulfilled in the fullness of time. The new heavens and new earth. A thousand generations of sinless humanity. The coming generation. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. That He has performed it. That He has performed it. Alright. So, from the point where humanity was first birthed in Proverbs 8, to the agreement between the Father and the Son that Jesus Christ would become the sacrifice on behalf of mankind. We see that it's Jesus Christ's delight to uh, accomplish everything the Father assigns for Him to do. And it's the Father's delight to reward the Son with all that He has vowed on His behalf. Over to Psalm 40. We see some more of this. Another Davidic song. How blessed is the man, verse 4 says, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Jesus had a choice. Rejected the tempter. Rejected all the temptations of bowing down and worshiping. He did not turn to the proud. He did not turn to those who lapse into falsehood. He made Yahweh his trust and was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done. And your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. I would, if I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. So many of our hymn, hymn uh, writers have expressed the same thing. You know, if all the ocean was ink, there wouldn't be enough to write. If all the heavens was a parchment, that's not big enough on the scroll. All right. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, or my ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So it's not coming about through external religion. That's all shadow typology. It's the reality that will accomplish our redemption. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Is this David writing this? Or is this Jesus writing this? Or both? This is is true for David, but prophetically this is true for Jesus. And when we see this quoted in Hebrews 10, we see the uh, the reality of this unfolded in, in what Christ accomplished for us through His first advent. It wasn't through the Levitical offerings. The, if, if the blood of bulls or goats could take away sin, well then, hey, we'd be, we'd be good with that. Do that. But they could never take away sin. Year after year after year, they were just reminders of sin. Year after year after year, all they could do was atone, cover, and allow for a merciful God to pass over looking forward to a reality of when the sin would be removed. That's all that Levitical offerings could do. And they could only do that because God's a God of grace and said this will be an acceptable uh, in the meantime provision. 
I delight to do your will, O my God. Behold, I come, a body thou hast prepared for me. So this has been the Lord's delight from ages past. All right, so let's end with Hebrews 10, verses 7 and 9. This is why when he exposes the traitor, he says, what you do, do quickly. Not because he's a masochist and he wants to suffer, but because he's humble and he wants to please. He delights in pleasing his father and accomplishing his father's will. So Hebrews 10, um, you'll note the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? If it gets, if it, gets it done, it gets it done, right? Get it done. But it didn't. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And next year, here it comes again. Another Day of Atonement. Here it comes again. Another Passover. Here it comes again. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away. The Hebrew kafir means to cover. does not mean to take away. It is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, when He comes into the world, the One who has been from all eternity with the Father, in the beginning with God, in the beginning was God, but the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when He came into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Or my ear you have opened. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Well, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. All right. <clears throat> Out of time and out of gas. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thy word is truth. Bless us as we depart. Let us review these verses. Let us spend our time dwelling on your Son, who delighted in you from eternity past. Thank you that on this Thursday night, in April of 33 A.D., He continued to delight in you, even as He washed His disciples' feet, even as He broke bread with His betrayer, Thank you, Father, for His faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.